Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may nothing get in the way of your word this morning. That's our prayer. Amen. So this morning, even if you hate taking notes, you hated school, uh, this is content heavy, first time ever, page and a half, and you're going to want this even if you don't want to fill stuff in. So I would encourage you on the tables and the chairs. I see people already headed away from the altars uh, to get those. Um, And uh, we're going to jump right in. Um, We're in a series on Hebrews, uh, as you probably all know. And uh, let's begin today with a well-known verse. You may not even have known this was in Hebrews, but you probably know most of the verse. Uh, Read with me from chapter four, verse 12. Look at it. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division, great word, division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Look what it says. Look at the action words. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, it's piercing. There's no other writing like this in the world. It's not just grammar and vocabulary. It's actually living. This is because of the Holy Spirit. Remember the dead letter? The scripture calls itself a dead letter if, and, and a curse. A curse if it's not for the spirit that makes it living and living in us. Um, so this is a key. No matter t- how many times you've read the word, no matter how much you know about the word, the next time you read it, it can say way more to it than it has ever said before because it's living, it's active. In fact, this verse tells us that the word is so powerful that it even, and this may be one of the horrors of the word, it even exposes our thoughts and our intentions, our heart. Now you need to understand the biblical view of the concept of the heart is very simple. The heart is the part of us that chooses. The heart is the will. It's where we determine what we're going to do and who we're going to be. So the word pierces into the secrets of our heart, ready? It sharply divides truth and falsehood in our thinking. It pierces our facades. It pierces through the things that we hide from others. The word, if we read it with the Spirit's eyes, it actually exposes to me who I am. It exposes who we are. And Hebrews is scripture, ready? It's scripture that takes scripture very seriously. Did you know that there's only two books in the New Testament? One's only five five chapters long. This is 13 chapters long. Did you know the book of Hebrews has an, a quote from the, at least one quote from the Old Testament in every single chapter, all 13? There are 75 quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews is deeply steeped in the confidence that God's word is active. And don't be thinking, oh, well, but that's just Old Testament. The world was turned upside down by the apostles in the church. And do you know what Bible they were preaching out of? the only Bible they had. What, let this soak in. This is hard for American Christians to think about. You know the Old Testament that you, you know, used to hear about in Sunday school? Maybe have never looked at again? We're not looking at the word of God that the apostles preached to change the world. So notice, you've got this incredibly high view of scripture that flows out of it, and you ready? Now I want us to deal with an outrageous, with this background in Hebrews, I want us to deal with an outrageous claim that God makes about his word in Isaiah 40, verse eight. This text is so important. Get ready to write, write in your notes. It's so important, I want you to write it in. Look at this. Here's what God says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, how preposterous is this for God to say? Think about this. Written words get tossed aside. Writing never stays perfectly intact over long periods of time, ever. So we're gonna look at the impossible history of the survival of the scripture. The journey begins with Moses, all the way back around in the 15th century BC. 
around 1450 BC. And look at this, it'll be on the screen from Exodus chapter 24. Then Moses came, this is the start of the Bible. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. This is the starting of the Bible. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Now after this, God commanded them to build the Ark of the Covenant, and from that time until the Ark was lost, and that's still in obscurity, but until then, the scrolls were always kept with the Ark. And now I want us to look at, and this is where it's gonna help to have your notes, and it'll also be on the screen, but we're gonna look through, I'm gonna go just pass through most of these because it's done so much, and this is a short list of what God's word has survived. Ready, look what happens how God has survived over the last 3,500 years. Number one, the children of Israel wandering in the desert. Two, the siege of Jericho and countless subsequent battles. Three, many cycles of rejection of God's word during the age of the judges, which by the way was 400 years and 10 cycles of rejecting God's word. Number four, being captured and stolen by the Philistines. Remember, the ark got stolen and the scrolls. So the Philistines, you ready for this? The Philistines had the Bible. Let that sink in for a minute. Now, they were really interested in preserving God's word, weren't they? Okay, number five, being recaptured and finally placed in the Temple of Solomon, and that's a hard archeological date, 971 BC. So about 3,000 years ago, placed in the temple. And then, uh, number six, centuries of cycles with wicked kings and priests in Israel. And number seven, this one's so important, I want you to write it in, ready? Number seven, a colossal disaster, God's people lost the scrolls. <laughs> Can you believe this? Let's pick up the story under King Josiah's grain. King Josiah, out of the 20 kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, there were five great kings, the scripture says, like their father David, great like their father David. Josiah was the fifth and led this incredible revival that we'll see in just a minute. But notice with me in chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles, just near the end of that book. Uh, ready, look at, look at verse eight in chapter 34. Here we have Josiah who's taken the king. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land of the, uh, uh, and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of uh, uh, Azaliah and Messiah, the official of the city, and Joah, son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So we see at this point, the temple around 650 BC, remember it was built just about 1000 BC, a little bit after by Solomon, okay? So now we're that far and it is in disrepair. So King Josiah realizes what's happened and now that he's basically become an adult and no longer under a regent, he now becomes the king, if you will, at age about, uh, what is this, around 26 or so? He becomes the king and he sends the priest to repair. And uh, while this was happening, look at what they found. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought for the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law. It's really easy to read through there if you do a read of the Bible. <laughs> Hilkiah the priest found, found, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Can you believe it? They actually lost the Bible, okay? But God had a plan, a plan to raise up a Josiah generation. I'm giving your, I'm giving your son a, a, a promotion today. Um, uh, by the way, I think, I think Adrian called me Pastor Dan, so I got a promotion today too. Um, Okay, look at this. Here's the kind of generation God wants to raise up when his people have neglected his word. Ready, we're gonna see it come right out of Second Chronicles. Letter A, here's your blank. They rediscovered the word of God. Look again at that second half of, the ver of verse 14. Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law the Lord had given Moses. So they rediscovered the word and then letter B, ready? They read, <laughs> what a concept, they read the word of God, look at verse 15. And Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan 
down to verse 18. Moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from the book in the presence of the king. So they rediscovered the word, they read the word, and let her see, you ready? They repented. They repented for their lack of commitment to the word. Aren't you glad this scripture's just about those Jews way back there and not about us? Look at verse 19. And it came about when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Now you need to understand, in their culture, that is falling before God and repenting. And then the king commanded Hilkiah, Hekam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the king's servant saying, by the way, to be able to read that like that out loud, you have to practice. I mean, those are names, aren't they? Next, your next firstborn, there you go. Um, look at this, verse 21. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in the book. They rediscovered the word. They read the word. They repented for not having commit, been committed to the word and ready letter D, here it is. They read the whole word. There were no cliff notes, folks. Look at this. This is remarkable. Verse 29 then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up in the house of the Lord to all the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, look at this, all the people from the greatest to the least, and he read in their hearing, you ready? This is the Pentateuch, folks. This is the first five books of the Bible. This is 20% of the Bible, okay? Read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Now, I'd like to illustrate this concept, the reading the whole word of God, trying to know the whole uh, counsel, how it fits together. Um, I, I wanna give a satire about a, a, a missionary candidate and the, the interviewers wanted to see what his knowledge of the word was and so they said, hey, why don't you tell us as much detail as you can remember about the, the Good Samaritan, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. He says, oh yeah, that's one of my favorites. I'm so glad you asked about that one. And uh, wa watch along with me here as we see the word of God unfold during this interview. Uh, once there was a young man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up and choked him. And as he went on, he squandered his money on women and wild living. But fortunately, he met the queen of Sheba and she gave him a thousand talents of gold and a hundred changes of raiment. Is this showing up there? Okay, and because you gotta see this, right? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, and he got into a chariot and drove furiously. And as he was driving, he went under a juniper tree, his hair caught on a limb, and he hung there for many days. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And he ate 5,000 loaves and two fishes. One night he was hanging there asleep and his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair. And he dropped and fell on stony ground. But he got up and went and it began to rain and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. So he hid in a cave and he lived on locusts and wild honey. Then the women came running and said to him, come and see for the tomb is empty. And he made an excuse and said, no, I won't go. I have married a wife. So notice now he goes on in the story. And, he, and then he fell asleep and he had a dream. But before he could interpret the dream, Potiphar's wife tore his robe off and chased him while he was running through the land naked until she turned into a pillar of salt. Then when he stopped running, Eve put fig leaves on him to cover his nakedness. But God was angry because he was supposed to use a coat of many colors instead. And then he took up and looked up and saw old Queen Jezebel sitting up high in a window and she laughed at him. And so he said, throw her down from the window. And they threw her down. And he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down 70 times seven. And the, of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full besides women and children. But even after all this, the good Samaritan still wondered, whose wife will she be on judgment day? Now, I just wanna point out, if you tracked with that, you are in big trouble. You really need this message. So, so here's our candidate, and notice what happened. Clips from all over everywhere, 
and he acted like he had a coherent biblical view. Snapshot here of little highlights and so forth. Um, uh, and obviously, I'm not just making fun of him. See, Josiah didn't just read his favorite promises. Josiah would have had all five scrolls on his refrigerator, not just the one he liked, not just the verse that was a section that he liked. See, he knew that truth and wisdom required the whole counsel of God. And you see, there is no shortcut to being grounded in the word. You know what you get? You get, you get a lot of the American blog about the Bible if you just like a few pieces of scripture that you really like and you follow the people that that becomes, guess what that becomes? That thought becomes their Bible rather than the word having, giving them insight about their thought. So this is one of the reasons, by the way, this is one of the reasons why many American believers who are spending huge amounts of time reading and online and watching news and watching TV, and they're filling their minds with all these beliefs, these deeply health beliefs that are, ready? Fundamentally political, political beliefs, consuming their minds with politics. Like the church that I just got back from in another state that I won't mention, that had three flags outside their church and it probably means exactly what they mean. On the bottom was their state flag and then above that was the Christian flag and then above that was the American flag. Saying exactly what they mean. You ready? So notice this, and then, what do Americans do? We go to the word looking for the parts of scripture that support what we've already decided is true. It should be exactly the opposite. There should not be one news program that you watch. There should not be one movie that you see. There should not be any electronic media that you're not seeing through the eyes of the word of God. That's how we're supposed to live and think. So no wonder Christians think the answer's in Washington. No wonder. I mean, can't you just see the apostles? Oh, they're pacing. If we could just get the right Caesar elected, then we could take the world for Jesus. This is really astonishing. So look at this. It's time to completely flip our way of viewing everything about the world through the word of God. Letter E, ready? They not only heard the word, here's your blanks, they obeyed the word. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. Then the king stood in his place and made covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Moreover, he made all those who were in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand with him. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And look what happened when Josiah's generation rediscovered the word. Look at verse 33. And Josiah removed all the abominations from all the lands belonging to the sons of Israel. And he made all who were in, present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. What a statement. Throughout his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord God of their fathers. You ready for the result of what happened here? When they rediscovered, here's your blanks, when they rediscovered the word, God revived a whole nation. You know any nations that could use that? Church, when God's people get really serious about knowing and obeying his word, incredible nation-changing things happen. So in number seven, we saw God's people lost the word, but now look what happens. You ready? Here's your blank. Number eight, God's people destroyed the word. It's now getting way worse. Look at the next generation was very different from Josiah's generation. I call it the Jehoiakim generation, Josiah's son, the next king. Ready? Look at this from Jeremiah 36, verse one. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the first day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah even till now. And ready, here, here, goes, here comes the book of Jeremiah. 
Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, this is the scribe, Baruch wrote in a scroll all the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken to him. Then the king, remember Josiah's son, Jehoiakim now, then the king sent Jehudai to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elishima the scribe. And Jehudai read it to the king as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now, the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month of Jeremiah. If you've read the book of Jeremiah, it's not, you know, it's not user-friendly. So look what happens here. Sitting in the winter house in the ninth month, a fire burning in the brazier before him. Then Jehudai had read, when Jehudai had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. So ready, here's your next blanks. What King Jehoiakim did? He burned the original scroll of the book of Jeremiah. Uh Uh-oh, I thought God promised that his word's gonna stand. So how is it that we are reading it today? Well, God keeps his promises. And he had a plan that was way bigger than King Jehoiakim and all of the other rulers who've tried to get rid of the Bible for all the rest of history. Ready, look at this from verse 26. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the son's king, Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. This is great, but the Lord hid them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll and the words which Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah, saying, take again another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, burned. From this we learn two key concepts, ready? Here's your blanks. Number one, God ensured the word survived perfectly intact down to the minutest detail. Jeremiah, I'm gonna give you every last word again. And then key concept number two, and do not miss this, no matter what the history of a nation is, all it takes, Jehoiakim's father was Josiah. All it takes is one generation to reject the word of God. Think of that. Number nine, the exile of Judah. This is when they were all taken into Babylon, right? And the destruction of the temple. So look at this, no ark, no temple, and the kings are destroying the scripture. (laughs) Number 10, the constant attempts by Persia, Greece, and Rome to wipe out the word. This happened for century after century, civilization after civilization. Number 11, the annihilation of the nation of Israel by Rome in 135 AD. Number 12, centuries of an official church that wouldn't let the lay people read the word. Did you know for several centuries the church would burn people at the stake if they weren't a priest and they read the word? which is number 13, thousands of people burned at the stake for propagating the word. Number 14, scores of oppressive regimes intent on wiping the word out. That's right, the Holland, the, the Stalins, the Hitlers, the Mao Zedongs. And uh, now that we've gone through this incredible story, this is why I wanted you to have those notes so you've just got them right there in front of you. L- let me ask a question. What happens to words written words after 3,500 years. There are four options. This comes straight out of archeology. span Ready, option number one, here's your blank. The vast majority are simply lost. You know, some archeologists estimate that we have found something like 1% of all the ancient documents available that could theoretically be found. They're just lost. Option number two, the language is forgotten and no one knows what it means, right? It's the, it's the um, the, the, uh, except they can't do this like in the Indiana Jones stories, right? They come to it and they go looking for everybody and everybody in the world and everybody says, I don't know, I've never seen this before. The language is just dead. Nobody knows what it says. Option number three, the parchments deteriorate and are destroyed by time. Option number four, ready? <laughs> A minuscule fraction gets found by archeologists and they remain almost entirely in obscurity. Only academics care about it, right? Um, This is what happens to ancient writings. Only a tiny handful exist over long periods of time. 
Now, I wanna give you a dramatic example. Most of you know William Shakespeare is probably the most renowned author, writer, uh, playwright, etc., writer in the history of Western civilization, okay? Everybody's heard of William Shakespeare. He wrote about 400 years ago. But over the centuries, the various copies of his writing have accumulated many discrepancies. Because of his renown, literary scholars have tracked the integrity of the various texts throughout the centuries. And let me give you a fact about the preservation of the words of William Shakespeare. Fairly famous and recent compared to the scripture. Look at this, here's your blank. The scholars believe that no more than 25% of Shakespeare, think of that number, no more than 25% of Shakespeare as we have it today is the same as his original writing. So when you go see Shakespeare, if you do, three quarters of that is by other people who've inserted stuff all through the ages and one out of four of the concepts comes from Shakespeare himself. And this brings up a big question. How do we know that that didn't happen to the Bible? How do we know the Bible hasn't changed over time? How, how do we know that the scribes didn't like, you know, I don't really like that. Uh, and and, and the, Hebrew, the, Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews used to say every, every, uh, every translator is a liar. Well, how do we know some of the scribes didn't like what they wrote? And how do we know they didn't insert stuff in? It kind of morphed over time. Well, let me first talk to us about the fastidiousness of the biblical scribes as they copied the manuscripts. Listen to this. They verbalized each word as they wrote it. When they came to the word, the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh is how we think it, they said it in Moses' day, okay, the personal name of God. When they came to Yahweh, they would stop and completely wash their entire body every time the word appeared. These the scribes were really quite clean. <laughs> when they were copying a book of the Bible, they had to com complete the copy within 30 days or the whole book had to be discarded. That's right. Don't get it pulled off in 30 days, you start all over. When a scroll was completed, if it had more than three pages that had required a single correction, even the entire document was thrown out. And as each page was completed, ready? So you got a page now. Every letter, every word, and every paragraph was meticulously counted to ensure that it was a perfect copy of what they were copying from. If any two, boy, I would have, you wouldn't want a doctor doing this because you have to have really good penmanship for this. Listen to this. If any two letters even touched each other, the page was completely discarded and redone. And Dana could do that. I could not. Um, and as uh, each page was completed, um, uh, amazingly enough, here's, here's, a, here's a key concept from all of that information. Ready? Here's your blanks. There's simply nothing like the biblical copying process in all of human history. There is no parallel. But you may ask whether the process might have been altered. Could there have been major changes that went undetected during the many centuries? After all, think of the Shakespearean manuscripts. Only 400 years and three quarters of it had been altered. So pay attention. In 1947, this very question was tested in the most incredible way imaginable. The threat came from the remarkable discovery of the scrolls located on the shores of the Dead Sea. To, to understand the magnitude of the threat that the Dead Sea Scrolls created, let's establish several facts about the King James Version of the Bible. The reason why I'm using King James now is it was by far and away the most commonly used, most popular English translation of the Bible in 1947. So we're focusing on that. Pay close, close attention. Ready? Fact number one. Here's your blank. The King James Version of the Old Testament, which by the way was completed, completed in 1611, was translated from manuscripts that were copied no earlier than 700 A.D., so stop for a second. Obviously, Jesus didn't write English, right? The, the Hebrew prophets didn't write in English. They've been translated. And when a translation is done, 
They used the most ancient, in this case Hebrew, because this was the Old Testament that we're talking about, the most ancient Hebrew copies, okay? Because we obviously don't have the autograph that Moses wrote. And at the time King, the King James Version was done, the most ancient copies were copied around 700 AD, okay? So about 900 years before the King James were the, was when the copies were from. But obviously, that's 700 AD, it's not 1450 BC, okay? So that's, that's the most ancient copies at that time. Fact number two, the Dead Sea Scrolls were copied no later than 300 BC. Ready? The Dead Sea Scrolls were copied no later than 300 BC, and these two facts give us fact number three, ready? This is stunning. The Dead Sea Scrolls were copied more than 1,000 years earlier than the copies that the King James was translated from. Okay, you ready? It's up here for those who think graphically. Look at this. So here's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, um, written by Moses, compiled by Moses, okay, around in the 15th century BC, all the way through all the last prophet, Malachi, sometime late in the fifth century BC, around 400 BC. And notice, the King James Version was translated, completed the translation in 1611 AD. And it was using, for its Old Testament translation, it was using the Hebrew textual copies that were copied around 900 years before it, 700 AD. Boom, the Dead Sea Scrolls show up, okay? And they were copied more than a thousand years before these copies. Okay, just, just let that settle in for a second, and if I can find my notes, we'll continue. Um, so notice this with me. This is just, this is kind of mind-boggling. The, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was the greatest test of the Bible's integrity that has ever occurred. They, they were unprecedented in their potential to invalidate the Bible. The scrolls were the ultimate challenge of whether God could keep his promise that his word will stand forever. And here's why, fact number four, ready? Here's your blank. If the scriptural copies experience the same rate of accuracy deterioration, right, tracking with me? The same rate of deterioration of accuracy that occurred in the Shakespeare's writings, then 1,000 years would have led to 90% of the texts of the King James Version and the Dead Sea Scrolls being different from each other. Think of it, relatively very modern, Shakespeare writing 400 years ago, and we've lost three quarters of it because of inaccuracies in the copying and recopying. If you say, apply that same deterioration to this thousand years, 90% of the Bible, Old Testament in the King James would have been translated wrong. And the difference would have been obvious because of the scope of them. So look at this from the Dead Sea Scrolls 40 years after, a book written by Vanderkam, who is a, a, a renowned uh, Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. Question, is there any contradiction between the Qumran text, it's called the Qumran text because that's the town where the caves were found, and the other manuscripts that were used to make the Hebrew Bible and the King James Bible? I mean, what's the discrepancy? They're a thousand years apart. Vanderkam I don't know of anything of significance other than maybe a word that has been dropped out of a text here and there. And let me give you the shocking summary from the Dead Sea Scrolls scholars. Ready? Here's your blanks. The grammatical differences between the text used to translate the King James Version and the Dead Sea Scrolls are less, you ready? Are less than a total of 50 words in the entire Old Testament. Compare that to the 90% that should have been changed. That's way less than 0.01%. So when the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls was completed, compared to the translation available in 1947, there were no sentences. Think about this. There were no sentences or chapters that needed changing. There was no update to make the Bible right. No new corrected version to be written. Notice. They were the same words, identical. Here's the key concept, write it in. 
It was a miracle that the Bible didn't have to be rewritten in 1947. An absolute miracle with astronomical probabilities. But remember what happens to ancient words. They're lost, or the language is forgotten, or the parchments are destroyed by time, or they end up in some obscure museum that nobody visits. But look what happened to these ancient words. In 1947, God sent a random goat into a cave on the shores of Qumran, of the Dead Sea. And a Bedouin shepherd boy chased the goat in, saw some obscure looking jars, but decided to tell somebody about it. Well, they were obscure, except they contained ancient parchments, which are of course of incredible value no matter what they end up being. All right, and when they were carefully unrolled in the laboratory in Jerusalem and the Hebrew scholars began to read the words that had been copied thousands of years before, to their absolute astonishment, they didn't read some obscure, unknown, unintelligible, meaningless nonsense. You know what they read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And every single book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther, complete. This is truly astounding. The words written on these scrolls are identical to the words in the Bible that we hold in our hands. This didn't have to be rewritten in 1947. Absolutely stunning, isn't it? Yes, unlike all other ancient writings, those exact words remain to this day the all-time bestseller in human history. And to underscore the miracle of the survival of God's word, listen to this prediction, I love it made by Voltaire, a famous Enlightenment, French Enlightenment thinker uh, in the 18th century. You ready for this? I think it's gonna show on the screen. Here's his prediction. In 100 years, the Bible will no longer exist on the face of the earth. And you ready for this? Now more than 200 years later, the French Bible Society owns Voltaire's home. How is that for God? in your face with the enemy. Isn't that spectacular? Voltaire will be long forgotten and the perfect word of God will stand firm. But see, a miracle of such incredible proportions is simply in keeping with the awesome power of the God who spoke the words. Here are more than a thousand chapters, 10,000 verses, and nearly 800,000 words copied more than a millennium apart that match each other flawlessly. When God made the preposterous statement that his word would stand forever, look what it would face. Through century after century, through storm and fire and flood, and destroyed temples and scattered nations, through negligence and deceit and satanic conspiracies, through persecution and hatred and scorn and disbelief, and through the misuse and disuse and misinterpretation and higher criticism and antagonistic scholars. You ready? Even through all of this, the word of our God stands. It is one of the great, other than the resurrection, it's the greatest miracle in history. So his promise is this. Neither time, nor principalities, nor satanic forces, nor the armies of the world, nor all of the powers of history will be able to stamp out the word of our God. I was hoping for a strong amen there because now, unfortunately, it's time to apply. Ready? Here's your blank. We're supposed to take part in the miracle of God's word standing. Look what you just wrote. We're supposed to take part in the miracle of God's word standing. As you look at the amazing survival of the scripture, it's clear that God has done his part in keeping his promise. I'll say, thousand years apart, 600,000 words in the Old Testament, less than 50 words different. I mean, boy, would Shakespeare, wouldn't you like to really be able to go to real Shakespeare? Too late. You had to do that within his generation. The Bible, folks, if Jesus doesn't appear for a trillion years, the word of God will be intact. 
because it's going to stand. So, but what about God's kept his promise? Well, what about us? What's our responsibility? You see, the word of God must not stand just historically and globally and archeologically. It must stand in each heart and mind individually. You see, we can't leave the responsibility of God's word to our pastors or theologians or a few interested lay people. It's true that from the perspective of the whole of human history, the word of God will stand. No question about it. But here's the question. Does it stand personally in my life? Does it stand personally in your life? I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but the Old Testament statement of the Great Commission that Jesus quoted in the New Testament, by the way, let me say that again. Jesus didn't make up the Great Commandment. (laughs) Guess what? Jesus knew the Bible. The written word is, in fact, the expression of the infinite incarnate word. He is the word. And notice, so he was quoting from Moses when he gave the great commandment. And so notice, do you, look what happens immediately following his statement of the great commandment in, in Deuteronomy. And I, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today, Moses speaking, shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them as you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. If there was TV back then and when you're watching TV. I mean, just think of the number of ways this would be expanded today of the word supposed to be bathing our minds, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your foreheads, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And now I want to give an incredible, what I think is a prophecy by Charles Spurgeon, now from more than a century ago. Look at the words with me. He wrote about his day, but oh, is it true of our day. It is today, as it was in the Reformer's day, we who have had the gospel passed to us by martyr hands dare not trifle with it. Do you know how costly this has been in lives for us to hold it? Some countries today, this is costly to hold in today's lives. And, and the faith that I hold bears on at the marks of the blood of my ancestors. Shall we cast away the scriptures that were handed to us through prison bars and came to us charred with flames. Look you, there are ages yet to come. If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another, and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we're not faithful to God and to his truth today. We have come, oh, is this not true in our culture? We have come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, our children and our children's children will turn that way, but if we turn to the wrong, Generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and to his word. Look at this paradox. The widespread presence of the Bible has become a strange potential liability. Think about it. We have Bibles stashed throughout our homes and storage rooms. We have instantaneous access to any version we want through Bible apps. We can access the word at any time we happen to have a particular need. In the tough times, when we're low, and when we need a promise during hardship. But you know what? God doesn't want us to only use his word when we need something. God intends for us to know his word, to consume his word, to infuse every moment of life with his word. And why is this such a big deal? Listen, Americans, because we can't be assured that our free and easy access to the Bible will continue. Listen, Americans. Here's a historical reality, here's your blanks. Satan's primary attack on the gospel is to try to remove the scripture from every society in every generation. I want you to consider a scenario that has played out dozens of times in the last 100 years in many nations in the world. 
What will happen if the word is banished from all public forums that doesn't, and, and if that happens and that doesn't satisfy Satan's desire to wipe it out? What will happen if biblically-based churches lose their tax-exempt status if they don't teach an acceptable gospel? Well, if churches are banished that don't accept the new government-approved Bibles, there's lots of nations right now where there are only government-approved Bibles. What will happen if they don't accept the new government-approved Bibles that have been washed clean of any hints of the concept of sin? What if your pastors are thrown in prison because they refuse to stop speaking the truth? What if the government tries to buy back all our Bibles during a period of amnesty and then they come searching for the ones that weren't surrendered voluntarily? I'm not making this up, folks. I'm reading history from the last 100 years on planet Earth, literally. And if this happens, how much of God's word will stand in our hearts and minds? If you don't have the written word anymore, like many Christians around the world don't have, and are desperate for even pieces of it to show up. How much will stand in our hearts and minds? Listen to these statistics from Barna's work. When you ask Christians about their knowledge of the 10 commandments, only 2%, one in 50 of us can list them. When born again adults are asked, what would make you spiritually more successful? Only 7% say that they need to read the Bible and do what the Bible says to be spiritually successful. These data show us how flippant the church has been about the word. Even though we aren't burning the Bible, we are losing the Bible. So, by, by the way, I, I, what I love is, you know, yeah, you can show up to conferences where Do you have a high view of scripture? Oh yeah. Do you believe Ezekiel? Do you believe Ezekiel was God inspired and it's the perfect word of God? Oh yeah. Tell me something from Ezekiel. Well, I I don't have a clue. Isn't that amazing? We know how to answer the tests about scriptural integrity, but we don't know the word. The word. You know what? It would be way better for us to know the word than to spend a lot of time on our theology of scripture. We need to know the word. So here's the great irony. In America, we haven't had the scripture taken from us by force. Rather, the research shows that we've voluntarily surrendered it and without, ready, without a single shot being fired. There hasn't even been a battle yet. See, the word hasn't been taken from us. We've given it away willingly. In fact, We're living in a Jehoiakim generation. The data show us, here's your last blanks, the peril of the word in our generation. Ready? The greatest battle for the Bible in this generation, friends, it isn't occurring in the courts. It's actually occurring in the church. Oh, Lord, help us. Adrian and worship team, come on up. This morning as we close, the Lord is calling us to be a Josiah generation, to stand and make a covenant with God, to drench our minds, our hearts, our homes, and our lives with his word. Let me ask you, if somebody walks through your home, remember what it said after the great commandment in Deuteronomy? This should be everywhere, on your foreheads, on your doorposts, it should be. If anybody walks through your home right now, would they know that you love God's word and you love God? It should be everywhere in our lives. The reminders should literally be constantly around us. So let me ask you, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to set other things aside so that you have the time that it takes to immerse yourself in the word? Will you commit to studying the scriptures so that, listen, if a day comes where they take our Bibles away from us, God's word will stand in your heart and mind? Church, it's time to join the real battle, the enemy who's stealing the word of God from us. It's time to stop the slide. It's our turn to take 
the word of God and make it stand. Let's pray. There's no doubt. No doubt that we've diligently passed on to our children a deep love for sports and a healthy concern for the environment. Maybe some of us have been really good at teaching them how to become financially secure. And we probably passed on a passion for electronics and entertainment. But have we passed on a single-minded, totally focused, unwavering, diligent commitment to the Word of God? I wonder this morning if the Lord has convicted some of us about our need to rediscover the Word. In this quiet moment of reflection, are we willing to commit to pay the price to be part of a Josiah generation? Rediscovering the Word, reading the Word, obeying the Word, and reading the whole Word. Lord, we've been distracted. We've allowed a host of non-essentials to steal our time of reading and studying your words to us. We've acted as if we'll always have the word easily available to us. We've forgotten how precious the scripture is in places where it's been outlawed. Lord, I probably have 20 Bibles in my home. There are nations that if they had 20 Bibles, they would celebrate if there were 20 in the whole nation. Forgive me, Lord. Lord, we've ignored that your word faces peril in our own country. Please forgive the way that we've trivialized it. Forgive us for treating it like an optional part of our life. Give us passion for your word and a deep desire to consume it. Holy Spirit, draw us to your word. Let it pour over us and use it in our lives to change who we are. And Lord, right now in this moment, may this not just be intellectual about the scripture. If there is any part of your word right now that any one of us know we are living unlike, convict us in this moment and let your word this morning be living, active, piercing, so that the life that other people see in us is exactly the same person we are in secret just cleansed, pure, because of your beautiful transforming word. Do this in us this morning, O oh God, we pray. Amen.